we've been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through Scripture. And every once in a while, we find it necessary to kind of go into some form of diversion for the purpose of developing where we are in our particular text. Uh, because otherwise, if I just did it all in the same day, your brain would explode. So <clears throat> with that in mind, we, I just thought it would be really wise to go over the book of Revelation today. But I want to say, like I would always, please never just believe me or assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. So having said that, uh, you can chase with me if you want through the book of Revelation. But for that to happen, you might need a Bible. So if you don't have a, you know, sort of one of those apps or whatever, or if you don't have a Bible with you, raise your hand right now and we'll get one right to you. And then it's an easy book to find. It's the last book of the Bible. Uh, certainly you learn an awful lot about something. I don't know if you're the kind that decides whether a book is worth reading. Uh, one of my minors is in English uh, communications, and I remember having to read book upon book upon book. And one of the first things I would do is I'd read the last five pages. And the reason is that I wanted to decide which ones I knew I would enjoy reading and which ones were just going to be pitiful and were just going to be worked. So the only reason I say that is we're at the back of the book now. You get to see the end of the book, this autobiographical love story between us and God. And that is a really, really cool thing. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and I'll develop it. Uh, and I just pray over the next 45 minutes or so that we really will be just feasting, feasting, feasting on God's Word. And then as we feast on God's Word, then we'll get ready to feast together as a family, uh, physically as well. So uh, pray with me, would you please? Lord, I want to thank you for the privilege of being able to take this time, get our hearts and our minds settled with you, and to seek to hear you, to seek to be in a place where we could hear your voice, where our hearts could be rent if necessary, where our minds, Lord, could entertain the truth, the immeasurable love, God, that you have for us where our lives would be fertile soil for the planting of your word. God, I pray that you would captivate us in your word now. For so many, Lord, who have maybe dealt with great trepidation at something like this book, I pray that now more than ever we would we'd leave her getting it. We would understand why this book is so important and also more than anything, to, to know you, Lord Jesus, to understand your love for us, who you are, your will for us. So, Lord, please, may we have so much fun in your word. But, Lord, prepare us now, Lord, for the all-you-can-eat buffet, Lord, of this beautiful book. And so, please, Lord, give us a spiritual veracity and hunger, Lord, and speak profoundly, distinctly, and bespoke to each of us that we would hear you speak right into our life, right where it's at right now, in a way that we get and we understand, but also, Lord, corporately as a family, that you would continue to unite us the way you intend to. So we commit this time to you. Redeem every second, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. This book of Revelation, we're aware of the fact it's the 66th book of, the, of Scripture. Uh, we, would, we might call it a great book because 84 different times in the book is the word great used. Great like is in huge megas in the Greek, mega. Uh, also, by the way, there'll be over 300 Old Testament references. That alone should be a challenge, especially since I won't be able to develop everything in the course of 45 minutes. Uh, angels will be mentioned 74 times, I believe, in this particular book. But I want to kind of start by giving us a little bit of a geographical and historical reference, kind of 
get our feet on the ground where this whole thing starts. So one of the reasons that I find it interesting that people really have a, a problem with this particular book really, I think, comes right out of the book itself, and that's Revelation 1.3. In Revelation 1.3, it's the one book you're promised to be blessed if you read. And I could see why the enemy would love to keep you from reading it. Because somewhere in it, if you were promised a blessing by reading and keeping and doing, well then certainly, if I actually didn't want you blessed, I would try to keep you from it. Now, with that in mind, and we'll kind of develop that a little bit in time, but I want to recognize, I want us to recognize a couple of things in regards to that. So here is, um, here's the world as we kind of know it. And I just want to kind of put us into where John is when he's writing this. The spread of the early churches, we know it kind of hits really primarily the area initially of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, this is our area down here. This is Israel. Uh, up here is Syria, you know, we would have Lebanon and Syria today, and then Jordan would be here, and then Iraq and Iran. Uh, but with this in mind, Jerusalem's down here, Galilee is up here, and as the, as the message of Jesus Christ spreads, of course it spreads to, through the water, if you will. Uh, we can thank the Romans for a lot of that. They built a lot of the ports and so forth and roads to get us there. Uh, but with all of that, this particular area here is our area of interest. Now, the reason that is that this today is Turkey, modern-day Turkey. And on the west coast of Turkey, um, there was a person who fled during the persecution. He's roughly in his 90s, late 90s. And we know him as the Apostle John, the guy who writes the Gospel of John. He also writes 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and this particular book he pens as well, Revelation. So John's in his late 90s at this particular point. And um, this particular area where John is, at this particular moment as he flees from Jerusalem, he winds up in this area here known as Asia Minor. Asia Minor, in essence, is the west coast of Turkey. And in that particular area, there are seven predominant churches. And John, in essence, then, kind of becomes the... Uh, he comes like the bishop, if you will, the overseer of those churches. Now, if we were to do the route from it, and it starts then in Ephesus. Today, it's Cushadasi. It's six miles in because the land's been filled in, to be honest, with silt. Uh, it's been so rich that actually we've been gaining property. Some places it gets eaten away. This is one of those places where actually if you had beachfront property a few hundred years ago, it's just not beachfront property anymore. So you start in Ephesus and you go from there then to Smyrna. And from Smyrna then you go to Pergamos and then to Thyatira and then to Sardis and then to Philadelphia and then to Laodicea. And if you were to do that whole route, it is roughly for what it's worth, uh, roughly about a 250 mile oval if you were to do that kind of trip all the way around. And John is overseeing these particular particular seven churches. Now, John at this particular moment, because it, uh, no, matter what, no matter where you put this old guy, you just can't stop him from sharing Jesus. And that really bothers a lot of people, including, of course, the Roman Empire, including people like Domitianus and so forth, who actually we have record that boiled, tried to boil John alive in oil, uh, which tells us that John was actually our first friar. For what it's worth. Anyways, so uh, anyways, but uh, he seemed to survive it, and then it really drove him mad. He didn't know how to kill this guy, so he sent him off to a little island in between. Let's see if I have a. Well, let me go back there for a moment. I better go this. So if we go and we take a look here, uh, this area. Well, see how good I am with this thing already. All right. If we take a look at this area here, what we find is is that there's. This area here, again, is Turkey, and then this area here is the area of Greece. And almost directly in between is this tiny little island called Paphos. And that is where John is sent. It is, in essence, a penal colony. So John's in his 90s cracking rock. The idea, it's roughly 195 miles east of Athens, or the, the port there, which is Pereos. 
And it's 170 miles west then of Ephesus at its time. So it's almost directly in the middle. To give you an idea how small this island is, uh, it really is roughly almost exactly two square kilometers less than the borough of Greenwich. In other words, it's half the size of Croydon. That's the entire island as a whole. Interesting, as tiny as the island, it has, actually has 365 churches to this day. And so I guess one for every day of the, of the uh, year, if you like. Now, when people start telling us this, if you're ever going to come to church here, let's start by actually having this agreement, if we could, please. It is not the book of Revelations. It is the book of Revelation. And it tells us in the first verse, and if you have your Bibles, look at the first verse so you can check on me. It tells us it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's fundamental. By the way, so you know, there are 40 slides, and we're already on slide number whatever that is now. Okay, so, <laughs> you know, eight. Look at that, see? We're moving right along. Now, if I recognize this is what the book is really about, apocalypsis, the word we get apocalyptic from, it literally means to remove the cover. It's the removing of the cover of Jesus Christ. Recognize this is the whole point of the book, is that God wants to reveal Jesus. Now, everything else that we add to it becomes more complicated because people really love to obsess on strange things. For instance, they might say, well, what about those four living creatures or the lampstands and the stars and all of these things? And what about demon frogs and these crazy things and the locusts? And what in the world is this about? But if you keep your eye on the one thing God intended you to see first and foremost, you really won't find yourself really lost in any of this. So John is on this island. He's in his 90s. He's somewhere almost directly in between, if you will, Greece and Turkey. And there he gets this revelation. Jesus just, if you will, stops time for a moment. And John is there cracking rock. And on this particular day, we read as the Lord's Day. Assumedly, that's a Sunday because the Christians would worship on the day of Jesus' resurrection. And Jesus just visits him. He makes a house call. But he does more than make a house call with John. He actually invites John back to his house. And that takes a radical, beautiful change as we see almost the entire first chapter. Because in the first chapter, what we really have is the only real physical description of Jesus in all of the Bible. Now, we have in Isaiah 50, 53, roughly about 700 years before Jesus came, we read he had no stately form or majesty that we should be attracted to him. Do you know what that means? It means he wasn't a great-looking guy. He wasn't big and strapping with deep surfer blue eyes and that beautiful blonde hair that we love to put posters up about. To be honest, he would be the kind of guy that really wasn't that good to look at. And the real question is, why would God allow Jesus to be that way? Well, can I just say it simply? Beautiful people are intimidating. And God, if God came to earth to be with man, he wasn't going to make it hard on you by being so good-looking that you would be a little bit intimidated to come to him. As a matter of fact, even the people who hated him didn't seem to have a problem crawling up in his grill. Did you notice that? So what is the revelation of Jesus? As a matter of fact, in this first chapter, I'll give you an idea. Take a look at it with me. See if you can keep up. I'm going to, forgive me, I've got to go quick because I don't want to keep you here. Well, I want to keep you here all day. You just don't want to be here all day. Verse 4 tells us he's the one who is, who was, and is to come literally is coming. Chapter 1, verse 5, we read, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, firstborn from among the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth, him who loved us, washed us from our sins by his own blood or in his own blood and made us kings and priests to his God and Father. And we read to him, be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Verse 8 says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the Lord who was and is and is coming, the Almighty. Wait a minute, Jesus just called himself El Shaddai, the Almighty? Yep, he did. 
It tells us in verse 10, as John looks, he sees a voice or he hears a voice like a trumpet. Jesus says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. He sees him in the midst of seven churches, which are represented by lampstands. He's one like the Son of Man. He looks like a man. That's the idea. Matter of fact, this is the second last time we'll read that in Scripture. The last will be in Revelation 14.4. He's clothed to his feet. In the Hebrew, that would be a mirel. A mirel, by the way, is a priest's garment that goes all the way down to your feet. He's girded with a priestly band, which also represents that. His head and hair appear like wool. For those of you who are quick note takers, Daniel will actually reference almost all of these particular physical descriptions to some degree when he speaks about the Ancient of Days. Daniel 7, 9 there, by the way. His eyes like flame of fire. Does anyone know what a flame of fire is? I'm like, isn't all flames fire? Isn't that weird? A flame of fire is lightning. So you're on one of those really dark nights and you hear all the thunder and so forth. And all of a sudden, and all of a sudden the entire sky lights up from one big flash of lightning. That's what his eyes look like, by the way. And then we read that his feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. And you go, what? Now, I've had some people who are friends of mine tell me, well, this is how you can tell that Jesus was an old black man. I mean, sincerely, that's what they tell me. Because they say, well, who else has feet like brass and hair turns white like wool? And so, I mean, if you want to play that, but in the end of it all, it really has nothing to do with what particular ethnicity he has. The word, by the way, for brass here is the word chalibanan. Try that word. That's a fun word, chalibanan. And if you actually spit on the person in front of you, you probably said it right. Chalibanan, by the way, burnished in brass. The closest thing we have to that is arc welding. If any of you have ever seen an arc weld, that is where the guy takes that kind of cool little fire and he puts it in this kind of, puts it in the metal and the thing shoots so bright he has to wear like the original Iron Man mask. We're not talking about the one that he like dolls up and makes, you know, in cherry red. But the first one, that was actually a welding mask. Now I have a friend who's a welder. He does neon and he does welding. And he, had, and the two, he ran a business with another guy. And I'll tell you how powerfully bright and strong that is that a guy was doing a spot blast. And what that means is he just kind of holds up the metal and he goes, and that's it. And he flipped up his screen so he thought he could get a better look at it. And just that little quick was enough to melt his contacts onto his eyes. Now, how about that? And this is what John sees. He hears a voice like many waters. Have any of you ever been by a waterfall and hear how loud that is? The closest thing we get in the city, to be honest, is when one of those guys gets one of those motorcycles and rips off his muffler because he really wants you to know he's bad until, of course, he almost gets hit by a bus and then he changes. But, but in that moment, like he's like, and you're like, you're kind of trying to look cool, but every muscle in your body's tight when they drive by. The voice of many waters is that idea where there's so much power represented for the moment, it just freezes you. So what we got is this beautiful image of purity and perfection and light that is being emitted so bright, as Scripture tells us in the Timothy letters, that God dwells in inapproachable light. Remember Jesus when he kind of just turned it up a little bit when he went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and how quickly it was that it said that he outshone the noonday sun? Well, that's kind of what you get here. But I'd like you to consider this. Jesus is at home. He's in heaven here, and he pulls John up to see this. Here at church, you've got, we all do, we, we doll ourselves up to whatever degree, because we know that we're going to see other people and they're going to be strangers and we don't want strangers to know exactly how we look without all of this, not initially, but our friends get the benefit of seeing us look our worst. What a beautiful graduation that is. You kind of really, when you see somebody and they're at home and they're not putting on pretenses, 
and they wear their mismatched socks and they wear their, their track suits and they're all just comfortable. They haven't known anything, but they don't care about what their hair looks like or whether there's makeup on or any of that. You kind of feel like you kind of know the person a little bit better. The thing is, we put on our best face, if you will, usually when we're in public, most of the time, if you will. Then we go home and we kind of put on who we really are. Jesus actually, if you will, had to tone it down so that we didn't explode when he came to earth. But John actually gets to see Jesus at home. And what he sees is someone perfect and pure, radiant. And it's amazing that John doesn't explode himself. In one eighteen, Jesus says, I am he who lives, who was dead, a reference to Hosea 13.14, and I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys to Hades and death. And then look at with me, if you will, to verse 19. Because this becomes, in essence, the structure for the entire book. Now, he's referenced, if you will, Isaiah in several cases. This first and the last, Isaiah says in three different places. Isaiah 41.4, 44.6, and 48.9. And in all three cases, God, the creator of mankind, the God over Israel, calls himself the first and the last. I'm the only God, and I will not give my glory to another, he tells us in Isaiah 48. I'm the first, the last. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand stretched out the heavens. Jesus makes claim to that here. Ezekiel 25, I'm sorry, I should say this, Exodus 25 and Zechariah 4 make reference in regards to this whole seven lampstand thing, if you want more on that. But in Revelation 119, now we get a structure for the whole book. It tells us this, if you will. It says, I'm right the things in which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which must take place after these things. There's our three-point rundown, if you will. That's our structure for the entire book. The things you have seen, the things which are, and the things which must take place. I'm going to give you a Greek word. shouldn't be a very difficult one, a fairly easy one to say. Try this word out, if you would. Metatauta. Try that. Metatauta. Come on, give it to me now. Come on, there's one of me and there's a lot of you. Metatauta. Thank you. Metatauta is the word for after these things. Meta, by the way, usually means after or amidst, beyond, for instance. The, do you know the Greek word for air? Air. How's that? Got another one there. Uh, and so when you actually have something flying through the air, it's a meta-air. What word do we get from that? Meteor. That's where the word comes from. Now, with that in mind, meta-tauta means after these things. And the reason I say that is, this is what Jesus says. I'm going to give you a commission, Johnny. I mean, understand, this was the same guy who left his boats, his father Zebedee, took his brother, if you will, with him, and they went to follow Jesus and just abandoned everything else to the great unknown to follow Jesus. And that was about 60 years ago. And now all of a sudden, Jesus kind of shows him this. He's been waiting to die, if you will. And there's been this cool rumor because of, of John 21, where Peter asks, well, what about this guy? When Jesus is reinstating, reinstating Peter, and Jesus says, well, if this guy remains until I actually come back, what difference is it to you, Peter? Follow me. And because of that, Peter, you could imagine, starts the rumor, I don't think this guy is going to die until Jesus comes back. So could you imagine? John gets a cold and everyone's like, oh, the Lord's coming. You know. Well, with that in mind, John's now, you know, it's been 60 years. How long before you actually go, well, how long are we waiting here, Lord? So when the Lord pulls him up and starts to show him all this, John gets a really good look at Jesus at home. And then Jesus says, now I've got a mission for you, Johnny. And here's your mission. Write the things you've seen. Well, what has he seen? He's seen the glorified Jesus. That's chapter 1. And then he also says, write the things which are. And then the things which must take place. Impress me. Does anyone remember that Greek word? Beautiful. Metatauta. Now, with that in mind, that's exactly the book. I remind you, it is the revelation. This is, it should be an easy question. It is the singular revelation of 
Jesus Christ. And guess what we got in chapter one? Jesus Christ. We got him glorified. We got him, you know, we got him clearly at home. We are seeing Jesus of who he is. That's chapter one. Well, take a look at this with me, if you will. This is basically how the book plays out. Write the things which you have seen. Chapter one, John has seen Jesus. Write the things which are. Chapters two and three, as he writes to the seven churches, he is a bishop overseeing. The things which must take place after these things. What's the Greek word? Metatauta. Well, that's going to be chapters four through the end of the book, chapter 22. So, with that in mind, follow me on this. Chapters, uh, well, there we go. Chapters, the things which must take place after these things. Heaven, tribulation, millennial reign, new heaven and new earth. We'll develop that in a moment. So, let me actually, oh, I've gone really far, haven't I? That's the problem. Now, if I'm going to do this, what we first start with then is these churches. Now, the things which he has seen, that's Jesus. The things which are are these seven churches. And I remind you, Ephesus, and then Smyrna, and then Pergamos, and then Thyatira, Sardis, and then Philadelphia, and then Laodicea. And he goes, each one of these churches has a unique issue. And he presents himself in some facet of himself that is directly related to the issue. The Ephesian church, by the way, he's like, you guys are, you are nailing truth. You are right, you are so right, you're dead right. He says, you can find a false apostle and a false teacher and you can nail them on it. Some guy's wonky on his doctrine. You know how to shut him down. But let me tell you this, though. You've left your first love. And understand, this is a Jesus who's speaking here who is the first love. He's like, you're so good with my stats, you forgot to hang out with me. You forgot why this is even important. So you kind of feel like if you just put in a little bit more of your time and maybe studied a little discernment ministry to tell it why everybody else is wrong, you think that's going to please the Lord. Because, but I didn't create you to try to prove everyone wrong. Hey, it's good to know right from wrong. Don't miss me. Because I created you to be with me. That's the whole point. I want to be with you. Please, come back. And if this is the revelation of Jesus, what I'm starting to see is a very different image of Jesus than you would just start to think, well, the book of Revelation is about Jesus getting angry and killing people. The church of Smyrna was the church that was being persecuted, and Jesus says, hang out with me. Don't worry, we're going to get to the other side of this. Smyrna, by the way, interestingly enough, is the word for myrrh, and myrrh doesn't release its scent unless it's crushed. Then we have the churches of compromise. Uh, that's, by the way, the Pergamus and Thyatira, to the point where it become completely immoral, and they raised up false teachers to actually be in the leadership. For which, by the way, Jesus shows himself as the one who doesn't have a problem, by the way, taking care of business when it's really necessary. The same way that the Lord would look at the cancer in the body of his own and want to see it handled. The cancer at this point was false teaching, was immorality and compromise. And he really wanted to see that dealt with. Then he goes to the church of Sardis and he goes, you need to tell them, you guys have a lot of really cool things going on. Man, your worship team's kicking. This is a loose paraphrase, but don't just believe me. This is the beginning of Revelation 3. You've got all these great things going on, but you're dead. It isn't that you're lacking programs. It isn't that you don't have really cool things that the world could applaud. But understand, throughout Scripture, two things have to coexist for something to be alive. The body without the soul is dead. Faith without works is dead. And a church without Christ is dead. And the church can be without Christ and still have a thousand programs going on and it can look great from a world's perspective. But Jesus goes, man, but you're dead. 
And he goes from that to the church of Philadelphia. And that's going to be a really important one. That's the sixth of the seven churches. And he tells them that they're faithful. They're actually the only missional church of the seven. And then finally he goes to the church of Laodicea in the Lycus Valley. And he says, you guys, you're not hot. You're not cold. You just look warm. And you can see the broken heart of Jesus through all of this. And I look and I say, well, if this is the revelation of Jesus in this second section, what, am I, what do I discover about Jesus? And if he's personally involved, he's personally aware, and he's personally pleading with his churches and the pastors, the messengers of these churches that he holds responsible for the condition of their church. He looks at them and says, hey, you know, that could change. And with every one of them, he actually gives a remedy. None of them does he say, you're done, I'm so tired of you, you make me sick. Though he could say, look, at, uh, I wish you were hot or cold. Because at least there you take a stance. You're so busy playing every side, you don't have one yourself. And what's interesting is from the end of those chapters, 2 and 3, I will not read the word church or churches again until I see it in the epilogue in 22.16. So look at, write the things which you have seen, he sees the glorified Jesus, that's chapter 1. Write the things which are the seven churches and their conditions, chapters 2 and 3. Are you following me? Does this make sense? Well, what that leads us to then is the, the last portion, the things which must take place after these things. And what's the word for after these things? Metatelta. Now flip to chapter 4 for a second. And I want to read, if you will, the first six verses. John now is taken up and he's getting a really good view of heaven, not just of Jesus, but he gets to see Jesus' home, if you will. Tell me if there's a word that seems to stand out. There is one landmark for which all things are positioned. But first, chapter 4, verse 1 says this. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard, which was like a trumpet, uh, speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Now, remember what that Greek word is again? Metatauta. The writer wants to make sure you get this so much that the first verse starts and ends with the word. Metatauta, after these things I looked. Come here and I'll show you the things which must take place. Metatauta, after these things. He's like, do you get it? This is the third section now. We are now moving into the things, not which might take place or could take place, but which must take place. But look at verses 2 then, as John now is taken to heaven, 2 through 6. Listen. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four elders, and on the thrones I sat twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes on the front and back. Now, don't get twisted for a moment and get, you know, get distracted. What is the one thing that he's focusing on here? What's the one landmark? The throne. Did you get that? He's like, from the throne, around the throne, beside the throne, coming from the throne, you know, and go from the throne. Everything is on. It's like John is looking, and as John is brought up to heaven, the first thing he sees is a throne, and somebody's sitting on that throne, and they're in charge. Now, please note this. God has this habit in Scripture of right before the world really gets wonky on you, showing you that he's actually in control. And he tends to show you the throne before things get a little bit crazy. 
He did the same thing, if you will, with Isaiah in Isaiah 6. Now, the reason why these four living creatures would look so weird to us, let's be honest, because we've never seen them before. It's just that simple. But I'll be honest. We live in Camden, or live, at least our church is in Camden, so you've already seen a lot of really odd things. So chances are you've looked at it and go, yeah, well, okay, probably weirder for other people than it is for us. But what John sees is a throne, and he sees somebody sitting on the throne. And now John is taken to heaven. Chapters 4 and 5, John is spending time in heaven. Chapter 1, what did, what did John see? Jesus, the glorified Jesus. Chapters 2 and 3, the things which are. What was it addressing? The churches. Now, chapters 4 on, the things which must take place after these things, the word is? Meditata. And that's where we're at. So John is taken to heaven, and as he is, these are the things he starts to see, if you will. He starts to see this, um, these, these living creatures. Now, this is the way the rest of the book breaks down. Chapters 4 and 5, that's heaven. Then from that point on, 6 to 19 will be the area of the tribulation, if you will. Chapter 20 will be the millennial reign. That's a thousand-year reign. That's what a millennium is. And then chapters 21 and 22, the new heaven and new earth. That's the entire rest of the book. Now, with that in mind, this is what he sees in quick events. First of all, he sees four living creatures. And they are funky looking because there's nothing like it that we've seen on earth. At least any of us should see on earth. Now, with that, they do say this. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. That is the important part to start with. And notice again the same thing Jesus addresses in chapter 1. The one who was, or literally who is, who has always been, and who still is coming. Now, understand there's holy in Scripture. There's most holy, and then there's holy, holy, holy. You just don't get more holy than that. Remember, I remind you, holy means set apart, distinct, unique, weird even. And the whole point that they're, they're in heaven, even these living creatures who are really, to be honest, the weirdest thing we may have ever seen, they look and they're like, Jesus, you are the strangest thing. Not strange like bad, but you were just so different from anything and everything else. And we need to recognize the more we try to make Jesus like a homeboy and a, just a buddy, someone that we might know, we may actually sacrifice his holiness to do that. There is no one like him. And the more that I, that I seek my Savior and my Lord, the more I want to find myself become like him. So they say, holy, holy, holy. And then from there comes the 24 elders. Uh, and then, of course, notice what they start to say. You are worthy. We'll find that statement three different times. They'll go, holy, 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 and then they'll be worthy, worthy, worthy. Here, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. You created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And then a strong angel starts to create this whole environment and asks, who then is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? We'll talk about that in just a moment. And what we read is, no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll, for which John starts to panic and freak out, if you will. And that is important to note. Because what John is looking for is the person, the only person worthy to be able to take this seven-sealed scroll. And John realizes how bad the, the ramifications are if there's no one. But then there is this elder afterwards. And it tells us this. The elder says, don't weep. Now, you understand what weeping is, right? Let me ask you. If the whole world seemed like it was going to be completely forsaken, would it make you weep? Would it break your heart that much? Or would you just be like, good riddance? Because John's in a place where this really tears him up. 
And so the elder here, and by the way, presbyteros, elder, elder means is, is an old guy. That doesn't tell us that everyone, by the way, is a little naked baby with a harp and, and wings because there's at least 24 old guys in heaven. We have them here. This guy goes, don't weep, or literally stop weeping. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and loose its seven seals. Interesting, John looks, but he doesn't see a lion. What John sees, actually, is a lamb. <coughs> John looked, and what he saw was a lamb that had been slain. Don't miss this. From heaven's perspective, he was an invincible lion. But from the earth's perspective, he was a lamb that was slain. The very thing that John the Baptist identified him the first time when Jesus emerges. Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, the sin of the world. And as Jesus then is found to, be, to prevail, then what we find are the four living creatures and the 24 elders, each with bowls of incense and harps. They begin then to respond with, you are worthy. You are worthy to take the skull open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, nation, and made us kings and priests to our God. We shall reign in the earth. Then many angels and living creatures and elders, what do they say? Worthy, there's our third worthy, is the Lamb who was slain to receive power, riches, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. And then, just to keep the party going, every living creature, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb forever and ever, for which then the four living creatures say, Amen. And the ten, I'm sorry, the, and the 24 elders fall down and worship him who lives forever and ever. So let me ask you, in chapters uh, 4 and 5, who is Jesus there? He is the only one worthy. Don't miss this. It isn't like they look and went, oh, hey, by the way, check it out. We found a worthy guy. They searched everywhere. Under the earth as well, which means there was no one. There was no religious leader. There was no other system. There was no other plan. All there was was one who was worthy to take this. And that one was Jesus. And that one still is Jesus. I guarantee when we stand before God, there will be nobody standing next to Jesus that anyone will say holy, holy, holy to or worthy, worthy, worthy of all the people that have dwelt on the earth that have called themselves some form of religious leader. There's only going to be one and that is going to be Jesus. Make sure you pick the right side, friends. So, (coughs) with that in mind, then we start to see these trials, these three sets of trials. We know them, by the way, as the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. And this, of course, usually is the place where everyone gets quite uncomfortable. But the real question is, why is God doing this? Let's be honest. Because there's going to be a lot of suffering. There's going to be some pretty horrific things taking place. Why does he do it? Well, I'd like you to, to note a couple things. First of all, he tells us a couple of verses in regards to trials. In James 1, verses 2 and 3, he says, My brothers, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, and then he talks about producing patience, patience, character, character, perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. First Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, it tells you that for a little while you may be grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, which is of greater worth that, that, than gold, which perishes even though it's refined by fire, but would be proven genuine and result in praise, honor, and glory when Christ is revealed. Here's the point. God knows what it takes to really push a a genuine response. But it takes us a little deeper than that. And this is, understand, this is what really made me fall all the more in love with God was when I realized what he was really doing here. Jesus tells us a parable, by the way, in Mark chapter 12. Perhaps you're familiar with it. He uses the term vineyard. By the way, if you read the book of Revelation, what will be clear 
is that it's called, it's referenced to vineyard because grapes will be picked and then there'll be the grapes of wrath from which, of course, people have used for their own particular writings. But here's the story. He said there was a man and he planted a vineyard. He set a hedge around it. He dug a wine vat and he built a tower and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. When vintage time came, he sent a servant so that he would receive fruit. But they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed, so he sent another servant. They threw stones at this guy, wounded his head, sent him away shamefully, so he sent another. Who wants to work for this guy at this point? That guy they killed. So he sent many others and they beat some of those, they killed some of the others, and he said, finally, you know what, they'll respect my son. I'd be a little nervous if I was his son at this moment. So these horrible landowners say, let us kill the heir that the inheritance will be ours. So they took him, killed him, and cast him out of the vineyard. So Jesus asks these religious leaders, who, by the way, play this role, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And the answer is threefold. He will come, he will destroy the vine dressers, and then he will give the vineyard to others. Now, it is important to note who owns the earth. It tells us, by the way, in Psalm 24, 1, that all the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This is still God's property. But throughout Scripture, what we have are times where someone would lend their property to bad farmers, if you will, tenant farmers, for which they would try to claim the land as their own, and there is a process to remove them. The same way that I don't know if any of you own property, but if you rent to someone, and somewhere down the line they move out, and the, the property goes vacant, and you get squatters, people who don't have done nothing but somehow made their way in, broke into your house. If you're gone for a period of time, you can't just tell them to leave. There is actually a legal process you have to go through to actually get them out of your house. Well, in those days, consider this. It was a threefold thing that you had to do. First of all, you need to recognize that there was a city gate in each city, and that city gate was where all business took place. That's where all the marriages took place, for instance. We know that, for instance, with the story of, the, of Ruth where they had to go to the gate to make sure that he was proper. There was a guy ahead of him, if you will, in the queue, so that he could properly marry Ruth. At the gate, there has to be somebody that sits there as a magistrate. He's a judge. He's the person, if you will, that's going to make this decision. This is why Jesus can't sit on the throne yet, because he actually has to be the person to be responsible to take the property. So the rightful judge sits on that property, because the first of these three steps is a private one. And what happens, if you will, it's sort of a legal battle. So what happens is that at that particular place, the rightful owner has his deed. And the deed, by the way, which would have the conditions for the guys that he allowed used to use his property. Those deals, the, every particular, uh, if you will, prerequisite, all of them were put with a simple seal. Seven would be the ultimate. It would be the complete, if you will, of it, of the leasing of the property, which means they had all the property to use. And so what you would do is you would be able to present this to say, I am the rightful owner of this property, and here's my deed to show it. Well, you could see why then it would be so concerning for John if they were looking to see if there was anybody to open the seals, because the only one worthy of opening those seals is the owner. So when they start to look around, you realize the first thing is there has to be this thing where the seals are open, so you could see the names written on there on your own signet, so you can say, well, take a look at this. This is clearly my property. So the first of those three steps has to be one where the seals are broken so you can see who owns the property. That's the first thing. So you know you have a legal right to kick the people off your property. Then the second thing that needs to happen is it's much more public. You have to blow trumpets so that people know. And that, of course, assembles the city. 
hey, I want to let you know right now, we're about to go and take this property back, and it would be really wise for you if you got out of our way, because you really don't want to join their side right now. They, are not, they have no legal bearing for what they're doing. So there's a trumpet that's blown for that. But then the third thing that takes place actually comes all the way back to Second Kings chapter 2, when Elisha is actually in a situation, he's t- sort of taken over for Eliyahu, for Elijah. And during that time, they find that there's this water that actually has been bitter. It's, it's been made, it's poisonous. And he tells them to go get a bowl full of salt. And as he takes the bowl full of salt, goes to the source of the water and he pours it on it. He says then, well, now this water has been healed. Now you can drink the water. You're safe. And they take from that, and the idea was that they would take these bowls after the land had been cleared out, and they would purify. So if you will, the first thing was private, the second one was public, and then the third one, if you will, was purifying, preparative. Because at that point, what you're going to do is you're going to go into the corners of your property and pour salt lines. And what you do by pouring these salt lines is saying, we are now purifying this property. This property belongs to us again, so we can lease it again. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. He will come as he tells us here, and then they will, they will destroy the vine dressers and then ultimately give the vineyard to others. Now, the reason I say that is then you recognize what's about to take place in what we call the tribulation. During the tribulation, what's going to happen is Jesus, the rightful owner of the property, is going to come and take his land back. But for that to happen, he's going to have to actually go through proper legal proceedings. And we see that here. But this is so much more than just a landowner reclaiming his property. It's a loving God giving every person a chance, every fallen man, a chance to claim him. Back in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, Jesus said to that faithful church of Philadelphia, listen, hear this, because you have kept my command to persevere, I will also keep her from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Why would the Lord take his church out before he pours forth his wrath here? Because we've already made our choice. <clears throat> we've already said yes to him, so there's no pinning us to the wall for that choice. There's a lot of people out there right now who want to tell you that they don't believe in God, but they're also really angry at him. And I don't know about you, but that doesn't make any sense to me. How could you be angry at someone you don't believe exists? I hope this doesn't break your heart, but I don't believe in Santa, but I'm not angry at him. I don't believe in the Easter Bunny, but I don't write horrible letters and start websites about how evil people that actually, you know, do the Easter Bunny thing. I don't know, just not that kind of guy. And what we're going to find is, is that Jesus is going to give people chance after chance after chance to say yes to him. Please understand, this isn't just God. If God really just wanted to punish people, why didn't he just send him to hell and remove all of the sort of stagery here? Because what he really wants is for you to say yes to him. This is the heart of my God. I hope you recognize that that's the God of Scripture. In the book of of Romans, chapter 1, it tells us that the wrath of God is being revealed against the wickedness and godlessness of men who suppress the truth by their own ungodliness. And then we start to see this downward spiral of men who refuse God, and yet three different times we read what his wrath is. Never in it is this God punitively striking someone. I believe the verses are 24, 26, and 28. (coughs) Excuse me. In those three verses, what we read is that God gave them over, God gave them over, and God gave them up. Or if you will, God gave them up, gave them up, and gave them over. These were people that wanted to run to their destruction, and God gave them a little bit of space, but then he held them. And then he gave them a little bit of space, and he gave them, and held them. The ultimate wrath of God is not God flinging you anywhere. It's God letting you run to where you want to go yourself. And I recognize that as a father. I look at my children, and they can, they're going to make great choices, and they're going to make poor choices. We're, we're, we're gifted at that. 
But I want to do whatever I can to try to encourage them. But ultimately, they have to make their choices. I can't force their choices. But I can pray. And this is a God who knows that his greatest wrath is just to let you run into the horrible abyss that you you would crave, which makes no sense to me why we'd want that. So, with that in mind, I've got to remind you of that verse because you've kept my command to persevere. He tells this particular group of people, he's like, look at, I'm going to yank you from this whole time of trial because you just don't need to be there. You've already made your choice. You've already chosen me, so there's nothing I have to test. I want to be this, wouldn't you want to go to this church, of the seven churches? I mean, one where he's like, you left your first love, another is like, you did. And then he's like, this one, yeah, yeah, I'm going to keep you from this. I'm, I'm, I'm good with this. Hook me up here. Well, with that in mind then, here's the way it goes. Now notice the way that this plays out, because this isn't just God, again, flinging punishment on people. There are the seven seals that are broken, by the way. Uh, and with that in mind, there are things along the lines of conflict and hunger and death and martyrdom. And great cosmic, you know, sort of disruption. But then notice the next thing that takes place after that is a reprieve. Chapter 7 tells us there's 144,000 Jewish evangelists who are sealed. Why does God do this? Just like the book of Romans, chapter 1, life got really bad. We're like, I want a world without God. And God goes, no, you don't. Yeah, I want a world without God. He goes, it's hell without me. And he gives him a little taste. And then he stops and he sends 144,000 evangelists around the world that says, hey, will you say yes to Jesus now? And my question to you is this. How bad does your life have to get before you finally say yes to him? I'm not talking about Jesus as your bellhop. I'm talking about Jesus as your Lord. And for some of us who have said yes to him, prayerfully, that's all of us, you know, often it was a really rough road to saying yes to him, wasn't it? It wasn't just like we kind of were walking and we were really nice and then we got really nicer. Life got really, really bad till we realized the only thing left was to cry out to him. Do you realize how kind that is? For a God that we were enemies of? That he would wait? So there are these seals that are broken and then he says, what about now? 144,000 are sent out. By the way, these are clearly Jewish people, clearly from Jewish tribes. So you'll never get me to believe that some wacko somewhere in New York decided one day that they're going to be the 144,000, even though that didn't matter whether they were Jewish. God makes a very special note here that they're Jewish. And what's even more fun, and all this is there a particular group of people that were from another cult that actually said, well, we're clearly uh, part of the 144,000 because we're Danish, and Danish is the tribe of Dan. Well, the weird part about it is Dan actually isn't one of the tribes you find there, for what it's worth. Now, with that in mind, there's this reprieve. But what happens after that? You see this massive, innumerable amount of people that have said yes to Jesus standing before him now in heaven. So what was the result of that 144,000? A massive revival. So was it worth it to kill the seals, to open the seals? Perhaps if what it did was made... You say yes. It was worth it. Now, I don't know about your road, but for some I know it's an overdose. It's doing time, fearing you're going to die. For some it was just such abject loneliness, there was nothing you can do left. You were so desperate, you were finally willing to humble yourself and say yes to a God who loves you. And if you haven't said yes to Jesus, I want to warn you, we're, believe it or not, we're getting really close to getting done here. 
you're going to have an opportunity to say yes to him today. Because I can't do this without giving you that choice. Now, I'll remind you, this is not the things which might take place. These are the things which must. And it starts with these seals. And when that happens, life is going to get really awful. And then he's going to pull it all back for a moment and go, what about now? I would think it would be better to say yes now before it gets worse. And then from there we go and we move on. The second set then are the trumpets. Just the same way that the landowner would blow the trumpets to call everyone to attention to let them know he's coming to claim the land now and remove the bad tenant farmers, the trumpets are blown. And here we see things like the trees and the sea creatures and the rivers and the heavens all being torn down, a third of each. And with that, ultimately, after all of this Horrible things. By the way, for what it's worth, it starts with prayer in chapter 8. And I think this is beautiful. With all the holy, 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 and worthy, worthy, worthy. Chapter 8, God silences heaven. And we don't read that God silenced heaven because another angel was coming and joining and getting its wings or any of that. What we read is that God's people were praying. And for all the holy, holy, holies, and worthy, worthy, worthies, God will silence it all for us the moment we actually pour forth our prayer. The question is, what would heaven hear when they really heard our prayers? I mean, I think there are times, if you're anything like me, I, my prayers are so goofy. That God would silence heaven, and then I would say something so dumb and so selfish, and then you could just see them all look around at each other going, you stopped us for, for that? I just want my, I want my conversations with God to have meaning. So, things get really rough again. And as that's the case, I mean, we got crazy stuff, locusts that come out of the abyss, the very thing that, by the way, uh, clearly demons didn't want to go to in the book of Luke. And yet in all of that, in the angel of the, of the um, Euphrates, and yet in all of that, what happens at the end of that? Well, what happens at the end of it again is another reprieve. Now God has two witnesses. They're initially invincible. They are basically appear to be very much like Elijah and, and uh, Moses. Now, whether they are or not, that's arguable. But hey, who wants to argue over that? That's dumb. What's clear is there's another opportunity to say yes to him. But at this point, every time you wait for the next step, it's going to come with scars. You know that. All our scars are our testimony of the hesitations to finally say yes to him. And then he takes us from there to chapter 30, if you will, here to chapter 13. Uh, and, and in chapter 13, we have these two beasts. These beasts, by the way, in the simplest sense, is one is the Antichrist, a world leader, and one is the false prophet, if you will, his sidekick, his Robin to this guy's Batman. We might call him the demonic duo, if you will. Now, you know what's weird is I've been a pastor long enough, more than, longer than some of you have been alive, which is kind of scary, but I remember the first time I used to start sharing this information, and I really did sound more like a nut than I do today. Because 25 years ago, we didn't have a one-world anything. I mean, do you realize what's taken place in the last 25 years? Things like, I don't like the Internet. And you realize the difference? I mean, back then we were still spinning records, and it wasn't retro. And it's radical, the things that have taken place in that amount of time, spanning the earth at one point, where we read in Scripture that the Antichrist will set himself up for the whole world to see. 25 years ago, what in the world was that? That was newspapers. If we wanted to make a phone call, we had a leash on that thing, and it looked like a barbell. Some of you were old enough to remember that. And if you wanted to go for a walk with that thing, you were only going to go as long as your cord let you. 
I mean, you know, there was like speedy ovens, but there were no microwave ovens back then. And then we got like really crazy things. Some of you remember things like Pong. You know what Pong is? Pong is like the great, great, great grandfather to Xbox. It was one game, two paddles, and you just kind of let this ball go back and forth. And you kind of, and to be honest, because it was so revolutionary for us, it was awesome. If you had that in your house, you were cool. You know, I mean, now it's like there's this thing and it like kind of scans your body and it like you just don't have to have anything and you just start moving and it records the whole thing. It's a little bit freaky and creepy for some of us older folk, but I get it. And now you're not, you're not you're like you're stealing someone's car and you're jumping off a cliff and flying. And it's weird. Now, of course, you put on the glasses and you have the whole experience. I mean, back then, Pong was it. Remember? I mean, we were we were cool when we actually, you know, graduated out of eight tracks and went to cassettes and they were smaller and that was cool. And then we got DVDs and those were like, whoa, check this thing out. It's like little. I mean, now you don't have anything. Now we just kind of, you know, we'd speak to our watch and say, download the latest. And that's it. How crazy is that? You know what cashless was back then? It was one thing. It was called a check. Right. That was it. That was all you had. Which means if you really wanted to not bring all your money, you had a, you had this book, right? And you flipped it open and you wrote your name and, and all this stuff. And it had to be right. And, and I, I just remember because the memos, I would always write these scripture verses and Jesus bless you and all this stuff. And then, the, you know, oh, you're the guy that writes those scriptures and, the, you know, the memos. You know, I just remember that. I mean, now let's face it. I know, guys, it's like, oh, how much is that? Okay, no problem. That's it, right? And we're done. Imagine if you just yanked some old guy from about 30 years ago and just put him in front of that and, and said, check out, watch this thing. You know what he would say? Wait a minute, what does it say in Scripture again? A one-world government? Interpol? With a one-world police? With a one-world jury? With a one-world military? With a one-world currency? Or at least a currency that will be able to transfer? So you could do something strange. You can sit in one place and actually spend money in China on the, on the Antipodes, the other side of the world? I mean, how weird that sounded. And a guy standing up and saying, you know, how about this? Go back a little farther beyond my age, by the way. But let's go back 70, 80, 90 years ago when Israel hadn't existed for over a millennium. And you're going to say, hey, there's going to be a, this is going to be a country again. And there's going to be a temple built. And there's going to be a temple built that the Israelis are going to stand in. And this guy is going to stand in the middle of it. He's going to get a seven-year contract. And then he's going to go somewhere in the middle of this. And in the middle of this, he's going to declare that he's the only thing to be worshipped. And the whole world's going to bow down to him. And he's going to say, you can't buy yourself without a mark. And back then we thought, well, that must be a tattoo. That's as close as you get. I mean, now it's like, you know, there are people in Sweden, they have chips in the backs of their hands so that they can get in and outside of, you know, closed doors. It's like, oh, I'm sorry, I have clearance. And that's it. And I remember when all of those, those a lot, well, most of those particular technologies were being developed and we just sounded like mad scientists telling people. And then we told, hey, look, if you really love your dog, you'll microchip it. And then there were people going, oh, is my dog going to hell because, and of course, Scripture, I just want to warn you. Well, maybe I just better not go there. But let's get back to our text. Here's the whole point of all that. See, now I sound like a really old guy. Here's the point of it. That everything we read, God doesn't need our help to bend and twist Scripture to try to make it fit into something. Tell us that Israel doesn't really mean Israel. Now God looks and goes, no, now what do you think Israel is? I guess it's probably Israel. And people go, I don't know. There's like these crazy demon locust things. They have like hair like men and teeth like lions. And, you know, and someone's like, it's like a helicopter. I'm like, you know what I think it is? I think it's a crazy demon looking locust thing with a hair like men and teeth. I have a feeling when we get done, we won't be arguing over it. We'll just be glad it ain't around us. 
But in every one of these things, the seals are broken. Then he stops. He says, now how about now? And then the trumpets are blown. And then he stops. He says, now how about now? You really need to do this now. And then you have these world leaders rising up. Can you imagine the concept of a, of a single world leader before the 40s? Because in the 40s, we had a guy that really wanted to be one. He wasn't a very nice guy, by the way. And by the way, coincidentally, he seemed to hate the Jews. Did you notice that? Well, with that in mind, these guys show up, this demonic duo. And then ultimately with that, what do we have afterwards? We have this reprieve. And the reprieve now is 100, the 144,000 are gathered back up in Jerusalem. The Lamb is there. That's Jesus. And the Lamb is there meeting them. And then we have these three angels spanning the whole earth. So you're like, well, what about that one guy that I'm sure exists on an island somewhere that can't hear about the gospel? Well, they're going to hear it from this angel. And these angels are going to span the entire world to make sure you hear this. And they're going to tell you, look, at first of all, you need to receive Jesus. Second of all, if you put your investment in this world-dominated Babylon right now, you are in trouble. It's going down. And at which point now it's like, look at this is your final warning. This is last call. Don't tell me this is God sending people to hell. This is God giving you every chance possible for you to say yes to him. Don't blame him. You made the choice, not him. Finally, after that, the only thing left is to purify the land. So what happens? The bold judgments, chapters 15 and 16, Babylon falls, 17 and 18. Babylon, by the way, is a place. You're probably aware of the fact that the uh, president prior to the one right now in Iran, Ahmadinejad, called himself the second Nebuchadnezzar. I find that a little strange since there's been five Nebuchadnezzar. He should do his own history. But, uh, but in that, he was somebody that actually said that he was going to actually raise up Babylon again. That was his intention. By the way, for what it's worth, we just read an article that this... Now I, you check me on this because, again, don't believe anything I say without checking it. But apparently, the Sanhedrin has reconvened. We know that for some period of time. And they have just met and sent letters out with Putin and the president-elect, Donald Trump, to try to get them to rebuild the temple on the Temple Mount. And they're pleading with him to do so. There have been all kinds of crazy people talking about how Donald Trump is going to be the new Cyrus, the unsaved guy that helps all of Israel and the Christian world. I don't know if that's true or not. I'm not one of those guys saying that. I do know this, that according to Scripture, someone is going to set the scene so that a guy is going to set up and get in a contract with Israel for seven years. And in that time, he's going to build a temple. And then halfway through that time, we read it as 42 months, three and a half years, or time, a times and a half a time. It's three and a half years. He's going to stop the whole thing. What's interesting is we used to go to Israel at least twice a year. And you can go to a group called the Temple Institute. They have every article ready for you to set in the, the temple. And you ask them. The, the guy that's sort of, Chaim uh, Richman, he's the guy that sort of that oversees, he's one of the, if you will, the rabbi that oversees a lot of this. How long is it going to take you to rebuild a temple? And he says, clearly, it'll only take three and a half years. I think, well, you couldn't pick four or two. It's exactly what Scripture says. Three and a half years, it'll be built. Then he'll stand up, and we call it the abomination that causes desolation, where this guy is going to stand up for the whole world to see and to demand that the entire world bow down to him and no one else. You know what's interesting? Having seen the plans and the blueprints for the new temple, there's an addition from the last one. Do you know what it is? Electricity. And you ask him, why do you have all of this electricity run through this if you're trying to kind of go legit with the old one? And their answer is, well, there's something we want to make sure is added to the new one. I'm like, what's that? And he said, TV cameras. And I think that that's fascinating. So somewhere down the line, this temple is going to get built. 
And when that temple does get built, they've already set things up for a guy to set himself up to declare it to be the only worshipped thing. But as I look at this, ultimately what's going to happen? When I ask, who was Jesus in the tribulation? Remember, that's what this is the revelation of. So that's what I should be looking for, right? I'm like, well, what about these things? And, you know, I want to try to figure out what these demon frog things are, whatever. I'm like, hey, let's get to what we should be looking for. And I should be looking for the revelation of. So let me ask you, the revelation of Jesus Christ, who was he in the tribulation? He is the one constantly offering salvation to people who are refusing him. He is the one who's actually offering love to people who hate him. And he's giving chance after chance after chance to say yes. Now, that brings me great comfort. How bad must it get? Which takes us to our last three chapters. We get to chapter 19. Well, the last four chapters. Uh, we get to chapter 19, and what we have is Jesus then shows up. The Antichrist and this false prophet are there, and he takes them down. What we read, by the way, he'll knock them down with the breath of his mouth and destroy them with the splendor of his coming. This is no WWE battle here. There's no one on the ropes. Jesus just comes in, here I come to save the day, and then boom, and we're done. That's the end of the fight. If you bought tickets for it, I'm sorry, you're going to be really disappointed. Unless you're on the winning side. And with that in mind, they're defeated. The enemy is captured. Satan is, is actually at that point captured and imprisoned for a thousand years, which of course sets up chapter 20, which is the millennial reign. Jesus will rule and reign for a thousand years. And people go, why in the world does he need to do this? Why doesn't he just wipe the whole thing and start over? Because what he really wants to show us is that unless you have a free choice, you will never really follow him the way he's looking. As a matter of fact, after the thousand years, the enemy will be let loose. And as he is let loose, there will be one last battle at the hill of Megiddo. We know Megiddo was a place, for instance, Solomon stored his horses. Why is that important? Because the word in Hebrew for hill is har. So har, really. And so what is the hill of Megiddo? It's har Megiddo. Or we might say Armageddon. That's where we get the term from. So who is Jesus then in the millennial reign and the following battle? the undefeated heavyweight champion of the universe. And even though I said it wasn't WWE, still is that. Which takes us then to the end. So what we, what we found now is that the property has been reclaimed, the enemy has been removed, and the ground is to be purified. And with that then, he makes all things new. A new heaven, a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth has passed away. According to scripture, it tells us in Second Peter that all of the elements will melt in the fervent heat. How many atoms have to be split for you to blow up this entire building? One. If you can split the power of the atom itself, just one atom, you could blow up the size of this building without a problem. And there are 400 trillion cells in you. So what do you think would happen if God just released all the cells in your fingernail? Bye-bye, UK. So could you imagine? No, I'm not asking God to do that, by the way. But could you imagine what would happen then if God were just to release all the atoms and the power that were that are there to actually hold all that together? The entire thing just incinerates, just like Peter said. Because there's no greater cleansing than the cleansing of fire, if you will. And why is God doing this? Because there's something God wants to do with each of us that Isaiah 66 makes clear. If you've said yes to Jesus, he has saved you from the penalty of sin. And as you walk with him, he saves you from the power of it. But when we stand before him in the end, we will be very much rescued, completely rescued, 
in the very presence of it. This is why he even wipes our memories, if you will. Because he doesn't want you even to remember sin. Because he doesn't want a place where sin is ever going to be again. And he'll tell us that's the new place. Wait till you see your permanent home, your permanent address. It is a place without anything that sin could take with it. Tears, pain, weeping, death, all gone. And the only thing that's left is you and him. He says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them forever. He'll be their God. They'll be his people. Because you know how this book ends? God finally gets what he wants. You. So the book ends then with an invitation. He tells us this then. He who testifies that these things says, Surely I'm coming quickly. Amen. John, who saw all of these horrific things that he saw in this seven-year tribul- tribulation period, the three and a half years being the worst of them, yet John would say, You know what? Oh, even so, Lord, please come now. And how is that word said? Maranatha. That just means come, Lord. Come now. Even though John saw this, and I remind you, this wasn't John who just hated the world. This was John who wept over it when he saw no one worthy to take the scroll initially. But what John saw was that he saw that the one that he has followed for over 60 years is going to wrap this thing up and he finally gets to spend eternity with him and he can hardly wait. So how does it end? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Wait a minute. That's the one who sits on the throne now who says that. And we read the throne of God and of the Lamb. Where in the beginning in Revelation 4, there was one who sat on the throne of the Lamb that was worthy then to take the scroll from the one who sat on the, on the throne. By the end of it, Jesus sits on that throne. Because now the land is His. The air. And we get to spend eternity with Him in a place where even the leaves of the trees for healing let me ask you, are you going? Are you sure? It tells us, by the way, there shall be no... And this is uh, 2127. Go ahead and flip there. Let's, let's close this thing up. We're down to our last part. 2127. Go get that. It tells us, there, there, but there shall by no means enter anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. <clears throat> this thing is going to end with absolute purity, and you can't even mess it up. I can't even mess it up. No imperfection, weakness that I possess will have any impact, because it will all be gone from me too. And the only thing that will be in there will be those who are written in the book of life. Now understand, that's a fancy term for us, but not for anyone in the Middle East. Wherever you were born, you were written into the book of life. It's the registry. We have that here. If you're born, you are registered into the country. That's the book of life for you. It records your birthday, your death day, and if you married, so they could trace. We know that that existed in Jesus' day because that's why Jesus wound up in Bethlehem to be born there because they chased the lineage from the book of life. But in order for you to make the registry of the book of life, you have to be born. And in that same way, if you really want to know that you're in the book of life, you have to be born again. Not just physically this time. 
Because there is one who died for you on the cross and rose again to offer you a brand new life. And Jesus says you must, not maybe or it would be a good idea, but you must be born again. And this is how we close this. Are you born again? You can't make up the rules to that. If you accept the gift of Jesus Christ, confessing his death on your behalf for your sins, and believe he rose again from the dead to give you brand new life, to declare him Lord, you'll be born again. You'll be made brand new. And it tells us then, whoever is in Christ in the Corinthian letters, whoever is in Christ is a new creation. Not just whoever became new in Christ became a new creation. You continually remain one. Continually peer in his eyes. And it tells us in regards to this Jesus that we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And it tells us in the twinkling of an eye, we shall actually see him as he is and we shall be like him. And it tells us whoever has that hope in him is as pure as he is pure. Do you realize you could be as pure as Jesus at the hunger of his return? When we sang, Lord, come quickly, did we mean it? Or did it would just be like, Lord, get me out of this situation I'm in? As we go to prayer, I don't want you leaving here unsure. And I would love the privilege today of just giving you the opportunity to say yes, the honor, the, if you will, the respect for you to say, will you say yes to this gift of Jesus? who is not just seeking to make life miserable, what he really wants, to be honest, is for you to say yes. And the more time you spend running from him, the harder life's going to get. Because the more you're going to realize you just ain't as good as you think you are. You just don't have it. But he does. And today he wants it all. He really wants to be the architect of your reinvention. And if he can take the mess that this world is and blow this thing up and make something so infinitely perfect and pure and beautiful, what do you think he can do with your life? I'm here to testify he could only make it beautiful. Will you pray with me? So Lord, I know we've gone long, but Lord, we've been we've made it through the whole book. And I just I pray right now for each of us, Lord, that there would be a hunger for us to actually dig in deeper and to take a look and read through it ourselves. But we recognize it's more than just the book. It's the God of this book, the one for whom this book belongs. And we just pray right now, Lord, for each of us. Maybe there be those, Lord, like you're going to tell us, Jesus, as we continue through Matthew 24 and 25, as we start back on that again next week, that there are those who really don't even think about your coming anymore. It's just it's become irrelevant to their thinking. And so they start to abuse the other servants. They start to just get wasted. And yet you tell us that that is going to be a really bad end for such people when you do come unexpectedly. And Lord, I I know you don't want us to say yes to you because it's some form of threat, but rather out of some form of love, knowing that you've continually held out your hands to a rebellious and stubborn and obstinate people, even us as well. And even now your hands are still outstretched still. And I pray for every believer here first that we would stop playing games. We would stop being like Laodicea where we're sort of trying to ride the fence and being lukewarm. We'd stop just trying to go through motions like those that have left their first love in Ephesus. Or just get involved with programs but really not seek the the person and the relationship like the dead church in Sardis. Or where we've allowed compromise in our lives. 
like the Pergamus church, or even to the point where we've embraced sin that we know doesn't belong, like the Thyatiran church. But I pray right now for every one of us that we would get real with you, real with a God who is not messing around. And when I look at the end of this, what I see is you are the one who makes all things new. So I pray for that right now for each of us. And here in this room is, Lord, you are doing that work among our hearts. You know if there's anyone here who really has never really said yes to you or maybe just isn't sure if they have. I pray your Holy Spirit would convict them right now and they would respond. And right where you're at, if you want to accept the gift of Jesus Christ, I just would like to pray this prayer. I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, I ask you to give a confident, resounding amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. Let that be my words now. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I'm a sinner. And my sin makes me stand before you guilty. But I believe you so loved me, you sent Jesus, your only begotten son, to die on the cross on my behalf, to pay the penalty for all my sins, so that my guilt could be properly punished. And there at the cross, my bill was paid, my sentence taken. But at the resurrection, the new life that you promise is offered. And so I glad, I gladly declare Jesus as my Lord and Savior and hand myself to you and say, Lord, take my life and make it beautiful. I'm tired of running from you. Please write me in your book of life and make me pure in your sight. Wash me and make me yours. In Jesus' name. And if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. God, you've heard our prayers. You've heard those who've said yes today. And I pray, Lord, you would lead us now. Lead us to people who hunger for your return and are excited, Lord, for what you have for us, for whatever time you choose to tarry. Use us, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.